Okay, okay, this is take three. Hi, everybody. Brian Sussman here. Brian Sussman Show, Faith, Family, Freedom Podcast, episode 196. Now, I, I've started and restopped this now three times. Where am I going in this particular episode? Glad you asked, and glad you're here, by the way. More on me at briansussman.com, my Facebook page, Brian Sussman Show, my Instagram page for daily doses of inspiration, Brian Sussman Show. I'm working on a new book, and I've alluded to this in previous podcasts. Uh, it continues the theme that I've written about in other books on environmental Marxism. I know that doesn't sound real sexy, but the way this world is going quickly is all about the environment, and yet it's nothing about the environment. The environment is being used as an excuse to fundamentally change the way we live. This is a chapter in the early stages of the book. I'm not going to give you the title of the book at this time. That, of course, will be subject to the publisher at the end of the day. But it's one of the most important chapters in the book because this is the issue of the day. The issue of the day in the world in which we live is climate change. Everything is being rearranged in our society to fight climate change. The United States of America is about to adopt a net zero policy. And that's kind of lengthy and hard to explain, but basically at the end of the day, uh, we want to have a society where there are no carbon emissions from fossil fuels. That's what this country wants to do. That's what many European countries aspire to do. That's what the United Nations wants us to do. That's what the World Economic Forum wants us to do. I'll, I'll hold my breath for just a second and compose myself because, friends, this plan is unattainable. But nonetheless, let me dive into this chapter. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'll read most of it. I don't know if this will be a one-episode podcast or a two, but the, the title of the chapter is Designer Pollutant. Designer Pollutant. So let me skim through a few things here and get to a section of this chapter called CO2-101. CO2-101. This is an incredibly important chapter. World governments are implementing, now I'm reading, and I'm going to try not to comment. Or if I do comment, I'll make sure that I let you know I'm separating my comments from what's being written in the book. This, by the way, will be very thera therapeutic for me because, well, like I said, if, if I see something that's not working as I'm reading this aloud, I can go back and change it. World governments are implementing ambitious and expensive plans to limit the increase of global temperatures by reducing CO2 emissions to achieve what they refer to as net as a net zero carbon economy. I go on to say more on that in chapter eight. In the belief that carbon emissions are the primary driver of global temperature increases. Their plans would justify a fundamental change to the world's economy and radically alter the established way of life for everyone, particularly in the United States, which generates more carbon dioxide per capita than any other nation. So you need to be equipped to comprehend that these schemes are built on science that is far from settled. Let's go back to the basics for a quick moment. 
I will keep things as basic as possible. Oh, basic. Same word. Two sentences. Need to change that. I will keep things as simple. How about that? S-I-M. There we go. As possible. A carbon dioxide molecule is made up of one carbon atom and two oxygen atoms. Hence, CO2. Carbon dioxide and oxygen are essential to all life. Right now, we are exhaling oxygen and, or excuse me, we are inhaling oxygen and exhaling CO2, while plants are absorbing CO2 and emitting oxygen. Carbon is the chemical backbone of all living organisms from plankton to people. When new life is created, carbon forms key molecules like protein and DNA. It is also important to note that all of the carbon we have is the same amount we've always had. There is no more or nor less. It's just transiently stored in other places. Like the Earth's water cycle, evaporation, condensation, precipitation, there is a carbon cycle. This methodical series of events is nature's way of reusing carbon atoms, which travel from Earth to the atmosphere and back again over and over. Most carbon is stored in rocks and sediments, while the rest is reserved in the ocean, atmosphere, and living organisms. These are the reservoirs or sinks through which carbon constantly cycles. For example, the ocean, 71% of the Earth's surface, is a colossal sink that actively absorbs atmospheric carbon. The carbon from dead and decaying organ, organic marine organisms and creatures is also deposited in the waters. Over the ages, carbon stored in the many sinks can wonderfully evolve into fossil fuels. When humans utilize carbon-based fossil fuels for energy, CO2 is released back into the atmosphere and continues within the cycle. Carbon dioxide is actually extraordinary. As one of the greenhouse gases, it works to keep our planet habitable by absorbing the sun's immense heat, keeping and keeping ambient air temperature in check. Without this vital shield held in our skies, we would experience diurnal temperature swings wildly varying 100 degrees between night and day. This, however, is where climate activists will stop the conversation, insisting that the use of fossil fuels dangerously exacerbates the greenhouse effect, trapping an overabundance of heat within the atmosphere and thus artificially warming the planet and throwing the climate out of whack. The proverbial clock, they insist, is ticking. So the next section here is entitled Real Science Versus Consensus. Follow the science. It's a mantra we constantly hear. Joe Biden repeatedly said he would follow the science if elected in 2020. Candidates are repeating similar lines in this current political season. But too often, follow the science is code for accept the group think. That's not how science works. Science is about a rigorous process that follows a routine method meant to be scrutinized. That begins with a hypothesis, a suggested explanation for an observable phenomenon or a reason, a reason prediction of a possible causal correlation among multiple phenomena. That's a mouthful my comments there, aside from the text, but it is a mouthful. Maybe I need to work on that. At any rate, in the case of global warming or climate change, the hypothesis would state the use of fossil fuels is artificially warming the planet, warming the atmosphere, 
altering the Earth's climate and endangering life on Earth. Next, the hypothesis would be properly tested through observation, data collection, analyzation, and interpretation of the data. A conclusion would then be drawn with the results public, publicly presented, published, so that they may be validated through further experimentation. At this point, the hypothesis may progress to a theory which is tested, or I should say, which is a tested, well-substantiated, unifying explanation for a set of verified proven factors. Well, a hypothesis really only suggests a possible outcome that is testable and falsifiable. A theory is backed by solid evidence. The theory is then rigorously tested again and again and again. And if proven rock solid, a scientific theory can become law, as in the laws of gravity, motion, or thermodynamics. Anthropogenic climate change advocates contend the theory has reached the crucial state of verification. And therefore, profound action must be taken immediately to save the human race. Others argue, if I may take a quick sip of my coffee here. Others argue, not so fast. The Earth's complex atmosphere has continually experienced ebbs and flows in solar radiation, temperature, and climate, as you will discover in the next chapter. Likewise, carbon dioxide has always seen its shares of ups and downs. Researchers who ask such questions and conduct studies scrutinizing the theory are regularly branded with pejoratives like denier. But of course, the other major issue that greatly concerns many of us is the action the activists, influencers, and policymakers are concocting to save us. Indeed, that's the reason for this book. Climate change is far from ascending to law. Yes, as you will see, atmospheric carbon dioxide levels have increased since 1800, though well within the geological record. And yes, the temperature has warmed since something known as the Little Ice Age ended about 1750. However, for a myriad of reasons, there are plenty of people I hold in high regard who have been quite skeptical of the absolute application of the climate change theory. For example... The late Dr. Fred Singer, former space scientist and meteorologist, foundational of the development of weather satellites. Dr. Neil Frank, former director of the National Hurricane Center. Patrick Michaels, co-founder of Greenpeace. Dr. Joel Myers, meteorologist, founder of AccuWeather. John Coleman, founder of the Weather Channel, the man who inspired me to become a television meteorologist. Dr. Roy Spencer, principal research scientist for the University of Alabama in Huntsville, known for overseeing satellite-based temperature monitoring. The late Dr. Bill Gray, another friend, hurricane research pioneer and forecaster. Dr. Joanne Simpson, one of the most preeminent scientists of the last 100 years and the first woman to obtain a PhD in meteorology. Dr. Harrison Schmidt, a Harvard-trained geologist, and one of 12 people who have walked on the moon. Willie Soon, astrophysicist, Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Dr. Richard Linson, atmospheric physicist, professor, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, now retired. Those are just a few. And there are hundreds of others I've had the great pleasure of meeting at various conferences and gatherings. But the cult, the climate cult, would tell you that these are outliers. 
at a distinct minority, as if to imply scientific theory is brought about by consensus. Doesn't work like that. Allow me to provide you an ancient example. Around 150 AD, Claudius Ptolemy, an Egyptian living in Alexandria, gathered and organized the thoughts of earlier scientific thinkers and published his theory of the universe. Ptolemy believed the earth was a fixed, immovable mass located at the very center of the universe and all celestial bodies, including the sun and the stars, revolved around it. Much like climate change, it was an arrogant theory that appealed to the human ego. Ptolemy believed the universe revolved around man. In the same way, the climate change agenda contends humans not only possess the ability to alter the climate, but also hold the intellect to restore it. Since the telescope would not be invented for another 1,500 years, it was difficult in Ptolemy's time to conclusively dismantle his beliefs. The theory eventually became known as Ptolemy's system and soon became regarded as scientific law and taught in all institutions of advanced learning. Questioning Ptolemy's view of the universe carried severe consequences. Punishment for skeptics and heretics included excommunication from the church, banishment from one's country, and, depending on the heretic's temperament, the ruling ecclesiastic authorities could pres prescribe a public burning at the stake. Because of the obvious intense pressure to conform to Ptolemy's worldview, Adopted by the ruling elite, absolutely no debate was tolerated, thus giving an appearance of consensus. Deniers were forced to secretly discuss their own contradictory theories of the universe in the shadows, much like skeptics and deniers of human-caused climate change are treated today. So much for human development. Finally, 1,400 years later, there was a major breakthrough. Polish mathematician and church official Nicholas Copernicus spent decades privately defying the centuries-old cover-up. Through extensive research, much of which was conducted under the cover of night atop the roof of his church, without the aid of a telescope, that invention was still 60 years away, Copernicus asserted that the earth rotated on its axis once daily and traveled around the sun once annually. Planet Earth was not the hub of the universe. And of course, he was right on the mark. Copernicus's findings were quietly presented in 1530 in his brilliant research manuscript entitled, I'm probably going to bastardize the pronunciation, but De Revolutionibus Orbium Celestium, which he privately shared with trusted colleagues who were intrigued and challenged by his detailed work. Fortunately, Fortunately, Copernicus died naturally in 1543. Had he lived another decade or two, his last breath may well have been taken from him by the flames of the stake. Seriously. Following his passing, Copernicus' Copernicus's book, The Revolution of Us, began to have an impact on the thinking of many subsequent and great minds. Italian scientist Giordano Bruno was convinced of the Copernicus system and, like an inspired evangelist, dared to openly share the theory. 
Because of his zeal for the truth, Bruno was arrested by the ecclesiastical authorities in 1592 and placed on trial. Refusing to renounce his beliefs in Copernicus's principles, Bruno was burned at the stake. And de revolutionibus was placed on the list of uh, forbidden books. Galileo was another Ptolemy denier. Utilizing observations gathered with his new invention, the telescope, in 1632, he boldly published his Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems, a work that upheld the Copernican system over Ptolemy's. Galileo was brought before the religious inquisitors in Rome and commanded to renounce all beliefs and writings supporting Copernicus's theory, but it was too late. The very primitive... Galileo's telescopes were being mass-produced, and too many eyeballs were confirming the truth that our planet and the solar system were plainly rotating about the sun. The mandated consensus, which had held fast for nearly 1,500 years, was finally broken. A brilliant definition of consensus was once given by former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. The process of abandoning all beliefs, principles, values, and policies in search of something in which no one believes, but to which no one objects. The process of avoiding the very issues that have to be solved merely because you cannot get agreement on the way ahead. What great cause would have been fought and won under the banner, I stand for consensus. We should all be for following the science, but not for science by consensus. I'm going to continue with one more section here, and then we will make this a two-parter. But let me continue. CO2 and the plant kingdom. That's the next section. Your average person only hears one side of the climate story. That script says CO2, which comes from our cars and trucks, gas stoves and gas heaters and industry at large, is a dangerous greenhouse gas that is creating global warming and climate change. They will persuasively call your attention to new reports of heat waves, storms, and droughts as their their routine proof while trying to fixate your imagination on the invisible culprit, carbon dioxide. Allow me to buck the trend by taking you back to our class to reveal some compelling facts. A moment ago, I mentioned plant life absorbs CO2 and emits oxygen. So here's the question. How would the plant kingdom respond to an increase in carbon dioxide? Research conducted by Michigan State State University Professor Emeritus of Horticulture, Sylvan Whitwer, indicates plants thrive in an atmosphere where raised levels of the gas are present. For example... With the tripling of CO2, roses, carnations, and chrysanthemums experience earlier maturity, have longer stems, and larger, longer-lasting, more colorful flowers, and yields increasing up to 15%. Rice, wheat, barley, oats, and rye perform yield increases ranging to 64%. Potatoes and sweet potatoes produce as much as 75% more. Legumes, including peas, beans, and soybeans, show increases of up to 46%. The effects of carbon dioxide on trees, which cover one-third of the Earth's landmass, may be even more dramatic. According to Michigan State's Forestry Department, trees have been raised to maturity in months instead of years when the seedlings were raised in a tripled CO2 environment. This is known as CO2 enrichment. 
or CO2 fertilization. And it can be accomplished with the release of compressed carbon dioxide or with a CO2 generator in a greenhouse. With the growth of the greenhouse industry and indoor gardening since the 1970s, this process is frequently used to increase plant growth and yields. Certainly an increase in atmospheric CO2 would be well received by the plants we humans so depend on. We also know that large trees are an excellent source of carbon sequestration. Wouldn't trees feeding off the increased carbon dioxide grow fast and bigger and absorb more CO2? And if the climate really is warning, warming, what would, um, would that expand the Earth's temperate zones and allow for more precious, or I should say, and if the climate really is warming, wouldn't that expand the Earth's temperate zones and allow for more precious plant life? Typo. So now, how could an element so essential to life be so vilified? So many important questions, but here's another. How could a gas like carbon dioxide, which is so minuscule in comparison to all the other gases in our atmosphere, be such a threat? Dun, dun, dun. I will stop there. We will continue tomorrow in this podcast, which has just become a series. <laughs> That'll be episode 197 tomorrow. Thank you for joining me on the Brian Sussman Show podcast. More on me at briansussman.com, Facebook, Brian Sussman Show, and Daily Doses of Inspiration at Instagram, Brian Sussman Show. Until next time.